Today we begin a new sermon series. It's called To Seek and to Save, Jesus and Sinners in Luke's Gospel. And over the next couple months, taken as into the beginning of August, we'll look at stories and teachings that are only found in Luke's Gospel. The author, Luke, was a Gentile convert to Christianity. He was well-educated, a physician. He becomes a ministry companion of the Apostle Paul. He wrote this gospel, the one that bears his name. He also wrote the book of Acts. We learn in the beginning of Luke in chapter 1, he researched his gospel by interviewing eyewitnesses. And so he wrote with the intention that the reader would have certainty about Jesus, certainty about who he is and what he accomplished. Now, one thing that sets Luke's gospel apart is his emphasis on how Jesus goes after a variety of people. He wants us to see how Jesus pursues the outcasts, the immoral, and brings salvation to them. So it's a gospel that is filled with hope and transformations. And we begin our series this morning with the woman who loved much from Luke chapter 7, looking at verses 36 through 50. Before we read God's word and hear it proclaim, let us ask for his help this morning. Join me in prayer again. Father, you have spoken to us in your holy word. And it is a majestic word. It is a powerful word. And so we ask that you would grant the same Holy Spirit who produced the scriptures through human authors would be with us this morning as we come to the preaching of your word. Help us hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest. Glorify your Son. Grow us in grace. Convict and convert sinners. Strengthen the weak and comfort the hurting. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the word of God from Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who was touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she 
has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. One way that Luke shows us the wonder of Christ's love for sinners is telling stories with unexpected reversals. And that's what we have here in this story. The surprise is that the woman who was a great sinner ends up being the one who is right with God, and Simon the Pharisee is not. Now, the woman in our story doesn't say a word. She doesn't have to say a word. In contrast to Simon the Pharisee, her actions speak volumes. And it illustrates great faith. And it's a great testimony to Jesus' power to transform sinners. Now today, we don't think positively of the Pharisees precisely because of stories like this one. But remember, for the Jews in Jesus' day, the Pharisees are the role models the Pharisees were one of the religious groups in first century Judaism, and they were prominent and respected. Their goal was to reform society and the nation according to God's law. Pharisees were moral. Pharisees were the upright folks. They had high standards for keeping God's law. They opposed the liberal and progressive Sadducees. They certainly opposed the rule of the pagan Romans. Today's uh, Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to the dads here. Happy Father's Day to uh, the first-time dads here. How is your first Father's Day? Dads, back in Jesus' day, if your daughter brought home a Pharisee, you weren't upset. You were thinking, yes, she's got a good one. She's got a, a guy who's going to treat her right. However, it's the anonymous woman and not Simon who is the example of true devotion in this story. Luke leaves her unnamed, but she was notorious. Her neighbors would have voted her least likely to become a spiritual role model. And try to put it in what it would be like today, but maybe it would be something like this. Imagine a scandalous pop star musician. You know, the ones who are frequently on the cover of the tabloids and gossip magazines and websites. Imagine such a woman coming to faith in Christ and then leaving behind showbiz in order to become a church pianist and a children's choir director in a small rural Bible Belt church. No one would expect that. Most would probably question her conversion, 
Most would write it off as a publicity stunt. Do you believe that Jesus can transform notorious sinners? Do you know yourself to be a notorious sinner in need of Jesus' transformation? I want us to see three things from this story. Jesus shows us our need for grace. I want us to see that. Secondly, Jesus is a problem not just for the religious, but for the irreligious. And lastly, we'll see that Jesus welcomes and transforms all those who come to him by faith. First thing I want you to see is that Jesus shows us our need for grace. And when he does so, he oftentimes must first show us the blinding effect of self-righteousness. The Pharisee thinks he perceives what is happening in this encounter. But he's shown to be in the dark about the woman, Jesus, and himself. The Pharisee in verse 36 has invited Jesus to come and eat with him. Jesus is an emerging teacher in the community. He is known to eat with sinners and tax collectors at this point in Luke's gospel. But he's also here, eats with Pharisees. And he does so on three other occasions in Luke's gospel. And here, there's some Middle Eastern cultural details to explain, to understand how this story unfolds. Entertaining a public figure like Jesus would mean that the doors to the home would be left open so that those who were not invited could wander in and hear the discussion going on around the table. The guests would recline with their head near the table, leaning on their left hand, eating with their right hand, and with their feet away from the table, because after all, their feet are dirty, and they've come in from other places. And then Luke gets our attention. In verse 37, he says, Behold, he's saying, look, pay attention to what, who shows up at this dinner party. He tells us it's a woman of the city who was a sinner. And understanding the setup of, of the entertainment that evening, we see how she is standing behind Jesus. And as discussion is going on, more and more people are, are distracted because she's weeping. She's weeping so much that her tears are producing enough to wash his feet. And it's so many tears that she does what would have been improper for good Jewish women to do. She lets down her hair and uses it to sop up the tears and to towel off Jesus' feet. But that's not all. She's then kissing his feet. It's a display of, of adoration. She is an anointing his feet. She's brought an offering to Jesus and is pouring it on his feet. Now this is the part that's not the normal part. This is not common behavior. And the Pharisee should have paused and considered what was happening and he could have done two things. He could have asked the woman, why are you doing this? Or he could have asked Jesus, why are you letting her do this? But instead, he makes a snap judgment and he jumps to a conclusion in verse 39. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. He judges the woman. She is dirty and that's all she'll ever be. He exonerates himself. 
He would never allow such a woman to touch his feet. Tragically, he judges Jesus. Surely if he were a prophet, he would know that she is a notorious sinner and a righteous man, a prophet. They would not be comfortable with being so close to someone like this. He condemns the woman and he condemns Jesus while giving himself the verdict of being the only righteous one. What is Simon missing? Well, in, later in verse 47, we learn that the woman is there to express her love and gratitude to Jesus because her sins are forgiven. We learn in verse 50 that it is by faith that she has received this forgiveness. All Simon had to do was ask Jesus or the woman for an explanation, but blinded by his self-righteousness, he doesn't even bother. Therefore, he cannot recognize the grace of God as it's on display right there before him. He cannot recognize this woman's genuine faith and repentance, evidenced by her tears and her gratitude for the Savior. So what happens next? Jesus and says, fine, you don't think I'm a prophet? I'll show you I'm a prophet. And he does this in other places in the gospel. He responds to Simon's inner dialogue, what's going on in Simon's heart and mind. And he does so with a parable in verses 41 through 43. And it's a, once upon a time, there was a, a money lender who had two debtors. And one owed him the wages of 50 days of labor and the other the wages of 500 days of labor. But both are in the same shoes. They, neither can repay. And then both are forgiven their debts. Now the point is, who's going to be more excited about their debt being forgiven? Well, one way we could do this is, let's try to put ourselves in the parable and think of it like this. Uh, some of you remember what it was like, and some of you are currently doing this, but you've racked up a lot of debt from student loans. Think about there in your, your apartment just after you graduated from Michigan State and someone from the bank, a banker comes and knocks on your door and says, congratulations, we have forgiven your debt. How would you respond? Probably a hug, probably a high five, celebrate it. Now, think about it if it was decades later, because some of you are still paying off your student loans from decades ago. But not only do you have your student loan debt, you now have, well, you had to have some babies, and so you have hospital debts, you had some car notes, you have mortgage, maybe some credit card debt. And so think of the pile, mounds of, of what seems to be insurmountable debt, and then the banker comes to your house and knocks on the door and says, good news, your debt's been forgiven, no more to pay. How'd you respond? Well, you would give him a hug. You might give him a kiss. Him or her, it wouldn't, you would just grab them, celebrate them, throw them in the air. You would probably be tempted to wash their feet. You would be more grateful recognizing the greatness of your debt. And Simon can't deny this. He begrudgingly says, I suppose... I suppose the one who's been forgiven the larger debt will respond with greater love. The parable explains the woman's actions. She loves much because she's been forgiven much. 
the parable also undermines Simon's view of God. There was a rabbinic parable at this time of a moneylender, very similar. A moneylender who loans his money to his friends and to an enemy. And the point of that parable is that God requires little payments one after another of his friends and, to, and requires a payment all at once of his enemies. And that's how the Pharisee would have saw himself, a friend of God, someone zealous for God, someone better than others. He wouldn't have saw himself as being perfect. He would understand that, yes, he sinned, but not as much as she had. And he would be required to pay for his sins, and he could, or at least so he thought. But that's the problem. He thought he could pay for his sins, little by little. He did not recognize his insurmountable, impossible debt. See, it doesn't matter if you owe 50 or 500 if you cannot pay off the debt. Or to put it another way, someone once said, it doesn't matter if you're drowning in 50 feet of water or 500 feet of water, you're still drowning and in need of rescue. As John Calvin once wrote, the root of evil is that no one examines his own wretched condition, which undoubtedly would arouse every man to seek a remedy. And an impossible, insurmountable debt is the perfect picture of sin. We owe God perfect obedience. And we each have failed, and the wages of sin is death. And because your sin and my sin is against an eternal God, it has eternal consequences. Unless someone cancels your debt, you will spend eternity in torment because of your unpaid debt. And that is righteous. But Jesus doesn't let Simon off the hook. He wants to make Simon self-aware of his self-righteousness. And then also, he wants to show Simon that He's not as good as he thinks he is. So what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus does a big no-no. He begins to critique Simon's hospitality. See, hospitality in the ancient world is very important. A good person provides good hospitality for his guests. But Simon has slighted Jesus and shown him minimal hospitality. And so Jesus begins to draw this out. It could be that Simon was trying to show him up. He brought Jesus there that day to judge him, to hold him in contempt and say, are you truly a prophet? Are you really one who represents God and speaks truthfully? And Jesus begins to tell him about his true condition. Imagine sitting at someone's table. They invited you to Sunday dinner. They just served you a roast. And the conclusion of the meal, you say, you know, it was dry and tough. Could have used some salt. And amazingly, though you overcooked the roast, you undercooked the potatoes. I give you a D minus on today's lunch. And that's something of the sense of what Jesus does here. But not to mock and belittle Simon, but to show him his condition, and to draw him in, potentially. Jesus wants to show him his sin so that he could offer Simon the same forgiveness that he offered this woman. So in verses 44 through 46, Jesus directly compares the two. 
Simon didn't offer Jesus any water, but she has poured out her tears. Martin Luther called it heart water upon the dusty and dirty feet of Jesus. Disgracing herself by letting down her hair to be used as a towel. Simon didn't offer Jesus the customary kiss of greeting, but she hasn't stopped kissing his feet. Simon's lack of hospitality demonstrates a lack of love for Jesus. It demonstrates that he's not as good as he thinks he is. But we come to see he lacks love and the desire to serve Jesus because of his own self-righteousness. And his self-righteousness has blinded Simon to his need for grace. Simon was wrong about Jesus. He didn't think he was a prophet. Jesus proves him wrong. Jesus knew about the woman's past. He knew what Simon was thinking. He is a prophet able to discern the hearts and mind of sinners. But the wonder of his grace that Luke puts on display for us here in chapter 7 is that this prophet is a pardoning prophet. Perfectly knowing the impossible and insurmountable debt that sinners owe to God, he offers forgiveness to any sinner who will trust in him. And the good news for many of us in here today is that Jesus doesn't stop pursuing those blinded by their own self-righteousness. That he dines with self-righteous religious folks and he offers them forgiveness too. The second thing I want us to consider today is that because Jesus offers the forgiveness of sins, Jesus is very problematic for the modern secular person. I want us to consider this story in light of our current cultural moment. And we could step back from the, the details of the text and look at it as a whole and apply it to our day in a way. Who is the antagonist in the story? Well, if you read the story to someone who's never been to church and who may be anti-church, they would say quite quickly probably that the bad guy is Simon the Pharisee. He would be labeled as a religious bigot. And why is that? Well, he should have just accepted the woman for who she is. Today's culture would say to this woman concerning her identity, you just have to be true to yourself. Concerning her morality and lifestyle, today's culture would say everyone has a right to decide what is right and wrong for themselves. You are free to live as you choose as, as long as you don't hurt anyone else's feelings or hurt anyone else physically. You're a woman of the city. Be you. A secular person might think that they are on team Jesus in this story because of how Jesus deals with Simon. But if they think that they're on team Jesus, they're not reading the story carefully enough. They shouldn't just take offense at Simon the Pharisee, but they should be offended by Jesus too. As Tim Keller has written, today's culture believes the thing we need salvation from is the idea that we need salvation. For many today, her conversion is unnecessary. For the irreligious, the anti-religious, the secular progressive, Jesus is nothing more than a friendlier version of a religious bigot. To offer forgiveness for sins means that sin is real. And unless your sins are forgiven, you will be held accountable. And that's unacceptable today. 
It means that we are not free to live in any way we choose and we will be judged by the Creator. So why bring this up? Each of us are called to be a witness for Christ in our day, in our day to day. We may look at the way Simon treated this woman and say to ourselves, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that guy. But we need to be careful that we don't overreact for the sake of engaging with the lost world. We don't want to overreact and avoid any possible offense that comes with the gospel message. We want to be welcoming, but we have to remember the cost at which we were welcomed into the family of God. Our sin required the cost of God's only son. So we must stand ready for hostility as we seek to be witnesses for Christ day to day. If you insist that God alone determines what is right and wrong, be prepared to be called a bigot. If you insist that the Bible is God's word, be prepared to be dismissed. If you insist that sin deserves hell, be prepared to be marginalized. If you insist that Jesus rose from the dead and that he is the only way to life and the true king of the universe, be prepared to be mocked. And in the face of such opposition, what do we do? We keep sharing this offensive gospel. In the face of hostility, we offer the only real hope available to sinners. Why? Because the effects of sin are real. The guilt of sin is real. And one can only give over to self-denial and their self-righteousness for so long. The world cannot offer any lasting relief or remedy. Only Jesus can. And he is able to save all that come to him. So we offer the Jesus we see in this story to sinners. We don't compromise. Any version of Jesus that affirms sinners in their sin is not the real Jesus. Jesus accepts this woman because she has come to him in humble faith and repentance. And he demands the same of every sinner who would be saved by him. Lastly, Jesus welcomes and transforms all those who come to him by faith. There's some things to clear up as we come to the, the end of our consideration of Luke chapter 7 here. Throughout the, the history of the church, um, verse 47 has, has been a, a stumbling block for some. It, it represents a, a division between uh, Protestants and, and Roman Catholics in the traditions of interpreting this story. Verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. The question is, did her love merit her forgiveness? The answer is no. But for the Roman Catholic, they see in here that the therefore is causal. Because she did this, she then received forgiveness. They see it as her participating in coming to Christ and what she had to offer and therefore she receives. There is an exchange. But that's not the exchange that has happened here. And it's quite simply that that interpretation of verse 47 just forgets the parable that came right before it. That the only exchange is all her many sins for his free and full pardon and forgiveness. 
The therefore at the beginning of verse 47 is not causal, it's evidential. She is showing this love and it is evidence that she is one who has received forgiveness. And how did she receive it? Verse 50, well, we learn that it is by faith. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And for the sake of the importance of further clarity, we ask the question, was her faith then substituted as payment for her debt? She couldn't pay the debt, but God instead said, but I'll take a different form of currency. I'll take faith instead. No, that's not the case. That's not what's happening in faith. The faith is the condition, not the cause. It is neither her love nor her faith that merit the forgiveness that she has received. No, saving faith is receiving and resting on Christ alone for what only He can offer. Well, what if she's to sin again? After all, she's her whole life and everyone knows her as a notorious sinner. Jesus gives her an assurance of pardon in verse 48, and it's quite the assurance of pardon. If you look back at 48, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. The word forgiven, the verb tense, it's the perfect verb tense. It's something that has happened in the past with an ongoing effect. She has been forgiven and will remain forgiven. She now is in a state of being forgiven. And she always will be. And you may say that, well, wait, shouldn't there be some, some condition to that? Shouldn't there, what if, is this liberty for her to then, now that you're forgiven and you can't be unforgiven, she'll do whatever she wants? And that's missing the whole part of the point of the story. That the forgiveness produces transformation. And those who know their guilt and their debt, when Jesus shows it to them, they despise it, hate it, and flee to him. It's not a license. It's amazing how full forgiveness motivates love and holiness for those who come to Christ. In the last couple months, on the, there's been plenty of occasions in which I've, I've, I've sinned against my, my wife, my bride, but on, on one occasion, uh, the Lord uh, was dealing with me because of my sin, and I was miserable, and I confessed it to her. And I was just upset, and she told me, you're forgiven, it's paid for sin. You know what that did? It didn't say, oh great, I get to do it again. But out of gratitude, I said, I never wanted to do that. Never want to, to sin against her in that way again. And it wasn't her that granted forgiveness. It was her extending the forgiveness that she knows from Christ. As J.C. Ryle has said, forgiveness must go before sanctification. We shall do nothing till we have, are reconciled to God. This is the first step in religion. We must work from life and not for life. Our best works before we are justified are little better than splendid sins. We must live by faith in the Son of God and then, and not till then, 
we shall walk in his ways. The heart which has experienced the pardoning love of Christ is the heart which loves Christ and strives to glorify him. As Mr. Hinckley teaches in his class, preparing our covenant children to come to the Lord's table, the basic gospel outline of guilt, grace, and then gratitude. Seeing your guilt and debt before God, seeing God's grace as offered to you in the payment of his son on the cross, and then in light of receiving that forgiveness, lives of gratitude, seeking his glory, endeavoring never to return to the things that his blood paid for. The Apostle Paul explains to us very simply the, the Christian life in Galatians is faith working through love. Now, there's a couple more things in the passage to, to address. It opens in the beginning, telling us that she's a woman of the city. Now, some take this to say that it's just saying she's a woman from that city. She didn't come from another city. She's from this one where Simon lived. Many uh, throughout the church history have taken this to be a euphemism. And maybe a more modern euphemism might say that she's a woman of the streets. So some would say quite possibly she's a, a harlot or a prostitute or she is a notorious adulterer. But we don't want to say more about her sins than Luke actually does. He does call her woman of the city, but only once. He does address that she is a great sinner and she is, Jesus does so when he looks at her and says, you have many sins, but they're all forgiven. Luke is more interested in identifying her as a sinner and not going into salacious details about her sin. Why? Well, Luke sees her as a sister in Christ now. And he wants the world to remember her not for what she was, but for who she is, a forgiven sinner. He doesn't want her to be forever identified by the particular sin that used to dominate her life. She is a woman who's been transformed by the grace of Jesus. She was a great sinner, but he was a greater savior. This is informative for how we are to think about our own going battle with sin. We are not to identify with our sin and call ourselves a Christian who does this. We are to think of ourselves as great sinners who are forgiven. It is how we are to think of others in the church. Is that when we see their sin and when they sin against us, we say it is paid for sin. The last thing is this. Luke keeps putting our attention at Jesus' feet. Why? Why the feet? Six times in the passage. He doesn't let us get away from it. Well, the feet were, were not something that were generally celebrated. In fact, uh, it was somewhat of a sign of dishonor. In Psalm 110, think about it, when God vanquishes his enemies, he puts them on his footstool. They become his footstool. They're under his feet. John the Baptist is unworthy to untie the sandals of the Messiah. To be at the feet is to be at a low, humiliating place. So why is it that Luke keeps bringing us back to the woman and Jesus' feet? Could it be that this woman 
came to see in Jesus what Isaiah foretold about him. When Isaiah 52, 7, he says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings the good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. This woman saw something different about Jesus' feet than anyone else at the table, especially Simon. It's at the end of Matthew 28. The women who encounter the risen Lord, what do they do? They fall and worship him, embracing his pierced feet. It is with his foot that he crushed Satan. Having been bruised, crushes the head of our enemy. And the question for each of us, whether you find yourself in the category of the irreligious, secular person or the person who's heard this story many times before. What do you see when you see the feet of Jesus? And have you been driven to his feet with love and gratitude as your only Savior? Amen. Let us pray for God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Father, as we just sang a little while ago, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Father, remind us of the preciousness of the price paid the impossibility of our paying it. And may that motivate lives of witness, holiness, and gratitude and worship. That we would go forth as forgiven sinners telling others of the great Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.